Hey, my name is Kevin Clark. I'm the host of a new football podcast called Slow News Day. I want to tell you about it. On Mondays, Lindsey Jones and I will recap the weekend in football that was, as well as look ahead to what's next. On Wednesday, the normal Slow News Day, the thing you've been watching for years, current players, current coaches, current analysts talking about the football world. And on Friday... It's a wild card. Could be some college football, could be more pro stuff. It's a video podcast, so you can watch it on Spotify or listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow on Spotify. It's Slow News Day. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page in the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of active wear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, you've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around. I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know, like nothing nuts. Just like a really nice pullover, comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable, you'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounge around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash ringer. V-U-O-R-I dot com. Slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Crazy night here as both the Bruins and the Celtics are in action. I wish they could work on that a little bit more so you don't have to use the two screens. You can just watch one of the games, but they're both pretty entertaining. The Celtics, obviously, they cruise over the Rockets 126 to 102. And the Bruins lose in a shootout to the Ottawa Senators. We'll get into both those games in a second. We'll chat with Chris Mason from MassLive.com. We'll get into the Patriots with him in terms of what's going on with this team. They're actually still in contention to make it into the postseason, and Mac Jones is apparently a dirty player. I think he's making a lot of dirty plays recently, and he did it last year as well with Brian Burns. So we'll get into all that with Chris Mason at MassLive.com. And if there's any chance that Matt Patricia is going to be the offensive play caller for this team next season, I just I can't understand how they could possibly bring him back with the results being this bad for this Patriots team. But we'll get into that in a second. I thought from a Celtics perspective tonight, it was a professional win. You outscore the Rockets 34-21 in the fourth quarter. You would figure the Rockets coming off a back-to-back, they're going to have tired legs. And you took advantage of the things that the Rockets are really, really bad at in terms of their terrible defending in transition. On the season, they give up 17.4 fast break points per game. That's last in the NBA tonight. The Celtics have 24 of those. They kept turning the basketball over, which is something they do all season long. They are second to last in opponents' points off turnovers. Tonight, the Celtics had 21 points off the Rockets' turnovers. So a professional win, because remember, basically a week ago at this time, we were talking about the Celtics not coming into these games 
with the necessary energy against these inferior teams like the Pacers. Now, the Rockets are way worse than the Pacers, but you get my point. Totally different from what we saw a week ago, and I believe some of that has to do with what happened on Christmas Day, and I'll get into that in a second. So here's the lucky seven, a couple of Celtics takes and a couple of Bruins takes in here as well. So let me start with this. I feel like the most important thing that came out of this game tonight from a Celtics perspective was Robert Williams. He was all over the place in this game. 21 minutes, 15 boards, five offensive, which is just stupid. So also he was a perfect four for four from the field. And if you look at it on the season, Steven Adams leads the NBA with 4.8 offensive rebounds per game. He plays 26.3 minutes a game. Rob had five tonight in 21 minutes, and he's barely back from his knee injury, right? And then you look at the fact that those 15 rebounds in 21 minutes, think about this, Sabonis, so I get his injured right now, but he leads the NBA with 12 and a half rebounds per game, and he plays 33.6 minutes. So those are sort of the numbers in terms of how ridiculous Rob was tonight, just in terms of his activity. This was, and we saw it a bit on Christmas Day, but from my perspective, this is the most active Rob's been. And you just go through a couple of things in this game. Early on first quarter, when he gets his first stint, he gets a tip in on a Jalen miss. Right after that, he gets switched on Jalen Green. Okay, now Jalen Green, I would not want him on my team, by the way. This dude just freaking chucks it. But anyway, getting back to the original point, he stones a guard. Jalen Green is an athletic guard. He stones him to the point where Jalen Green just throws the ball away. The Celtics go the other way, and it leads to an open three-pointer. And then right after that, Rob Williams ends up with another tip in. So it was just the activity that Rob had. And then you look at just sort of the advanced skill set that Rob has as a big man where he's at the top of the three-point line. And Jason Tatum, who's done an outstanding job cutting this year, he is much better in terms of his off-the-ball activity this year. Rob finds him for a wide-open dunk underneath the basket, but a lot of centers can't make that pass. And then later on in the game, fourth quarter, 101-84, Brogdon's just dribbling to his left. Rob back cuts, he gets an easy lob opportunity. And that's the thing that stuck out to me. And we're like, oh yeah, they didn't have that for the majority of the season. But just sometimes, not that they were struggling offensively tonight, but just that luxury item to have where you can just throw it up to him and he can finish at the rim. The Celtics don't have anybody else like that in terms of their big guys. Now, sure, Tatum and Jalen, they can do that kind of stuff in transition, right? When you get out on the break. But to be able to do that in the half court, it's just a weapon that the Celtics haven't had all season long. And I know some of the offensive numbers so far this year have not been great with Rob on the court, but I'm pretty sure that's going to even itself out because you now have that element of the vertical spacing, if you will. All right, another thing I wanted to mention, the Celtics team, they've not been getting to the offensive glass this year, which I'm fine with because, all right, just take care of the defense. They're scoring well enough in the half court that it shouldn't be a big deal, but Rob's obviously going to help there. They're 24th at offensive rebounds per game entering this one. So, and just a reminder of how good Rob was for this team last year. 3.9 offensive rebounds per game, fourth in the NBA, 2.2 blocks per game, fourth in the NBA. And another element to this is only two players last year averaged two blocks per game and two assists per game, Anthony Davis and Robert Williams. So it just kind of tells you, I'm not comparing the players, but just the versatility, the athleticism that Rob brings to the table on a nightly basis. And by the way, so far this season entering tonight, His per 36, 6.1 offensive rebounds per game. Now, Rob is never somebody that you want playing 36 minutes per night, but it just tells you in terms of they're bottling him up right now in terms of the number of minutes he plays. They're going to continue to ramp him up, but he's another guy where sort of in the Brogdon 
dimension, if you will, where I've mentioned with Brogdon on several occasions, you don't want him playing more than 30 minutes a night because he's more effective when he plays under 20 minutes. We went through those numbers last week. Rob's very similar where he goes balls to the wall. I mean, the activity level is off the charts for Rob. And you saw it tonight against the Rockets. So you just want to make sure he can harness that a little bit, have the necessary energy for the end of the game. And more importantly, get this guy to the finish line. So you never want him to play those type of minutes, but it does tell you just the activity level. And by the way, the defense already this season with Rob on the court is two and a half points better per 100 possessions. So you're already getting an upgrade on that end. And the offense will come around shortly. I promise you that with I'm not saying Rob's been bad. It's just they've been playing basically all season long five out. So they get it. You get used to playing with a guy like Rob again. And we're seeing it happen in the past. I would say three quarters or so when Rob's on the court. All right. So number two in terms of my lucky seven, I want to get to Jalen. So he goes for 39 in this game tonight. He's 14 of 26 from the field, three for five from mid-range, which that's his specialty, 60%, or I should say he's around 55% all season long from the mid-range. He's 60 tonight. And I was looking at it in terms of the number two options in the NBA, and Tatum and Brown are still the best in terms of the scoring, 57.5. Kyrie and Durant are at 56. LeBron and Davis, and we know Davis is hurt right now, they're at 55.2. But think about this tonight. This is now the 18th time the Tatum and Brown have scored 30 points in the same game. You know what the Celtics record is in those games? 17 and one. And I truly believe that this is what separates the Celtics from basically every other team of the NBA right now is having that legitimate bona fide rob into Tatum's Batman where the third quarter was Jalen. Jalen essentially ended the game in the third quarter. where He just completely took that thing over. And I continue to harp on the fact that when he starts to get downhill and then he stops on a dime, there's nothing you can do with that guy whatsoever. You can't do anything with him because he can just stop, decelerate, rise over you and hit that jump shot. And we saw it time after time after time tonight in this game. And then there's Tatum. Okay, so Tatum in this game, 38 points, 12 for 25, eight more free throw attempts, by the way. I'll get to that in a second because I heard something tonight that I could not possibly believe, but apparently it's true. So Tatum was the first guy, and he only took eight tonight. Only. Eight's really good. I said anything over seven is good. I wanted Tatum this season over seven free throw attempts per game. So Tatum was the first guy in Celtics history to have five straight games with at least 10 free throw attempts. I never thought that was possible. You take it through the history of the Celtics. When you own a Celtics record, that's remarkable. And this is one of the biggest things we said about Tatum entering the season. Get downhill more, get to the basket. And we're seeing that more and more with Tatum this year. And by the way, he got to the restricted area, six of eight there, that's 75%. So by the way, on the season, he's at 6.1 attempts in the restricted area. So that was even up tonight. So 20 of his 38 points in the restricted area tonight, which is exactly what you want to see, right? Is you want to see Tatum getting to the basket, getting to the free throw line. Five games prior to tonight, including the Bucks game, where again, he outplayed Giannis for the third consecutive game. Game six, game seven, and this game on Christmas, he outplayed Giannis for the third consecutive time. In that particular game, he was living at the free throw line. So five games prior to tonight, 37.4 per game. 11.2 free throw attempts per game. We told you about the streak. 7.2 rebounds and 4.6 assists. And now I'm looking at Tatum going forward in terms of just this MVP case because he went through a little bit of a slide and then we saw what he did to Giannis on Christmas. And I think that was an important game for Tatum. Entering tonight, he was at plus 249 in terms of his plus minus. That's best in the NBA. Jokic is the only other player north of 200. Last year, he was at plus 667, best in the NBA. He was the only player north of 600. So if you look through the history of this league, at least the recent history of this league, we've only seen 
four teams win a championship since the late 80s without a current or a former MVP. And those teams, Pistons with Isaiah Thomas, where at the end of the, that was at the end of the Celtics run. Remember, Bird was hurt by the end of that. Kareem actually retired at a, or after 88-89. So the Celtics were starting to get towards the end of it. The Lakers were getting towards the end of it. And that's when the Pistons cashed in before Jordan and that Bulls group was ready. Then you go to the 04 Pistons, which the league was really almost at its nadir at that point. If you go back to the early 2000s, there is not a lot of good teams. Even going into like 2007, 2008, there's not a lot of good teams, right? So first of all, the league was bad. And Shaq and Kobe were just beefing like crazy. Kobe shot 38.1% in the NBA Finals that year. He took 29 shots more than Shaq did in the series. And Shaq shot 63.1%, yet Kobe took almost 30 more shots in him. So that was, we all know what was going on that year. Kobe flying back and forth and all that. And then 19, you had Kawhi Leonard, who had played like an MVP previously in terms of two years prior in San Antonio. He finishes third in the MVP voting behind Russell Westbrook and behind James Harden. So he had played an MVP level. He didn't win the award. He had been a defensive player of the year. And also in that series, you had the crazy happen, right? Durant and Klay Thompson both go down with injuries. Durant, of course, the torn Achilles. And I still contend that if Klay Thompson doesn't go down in that series, they still win. So you had to have a really unique set of circumstances for Kawhi to win without the MVP situation. The 4 Pistons, that was perfect timing. And with the Pistons situation, Isaiah Thomas was like an MVP caliber player. He just played at a time where... The league was stacked and he got in there at the perfect time in terms of 88, 89, 90 in terms of that run where he won back to back NBA championships when Bird was dealing with issues and Cream was retiring. So it wasn't sort of the same Lakers or the same Celtics team, because remember, he had previously lost to the Celtics when he infamously threw the ball away to Larry Bird, et cetera. We all know the history there. But I do feel like Tatum is there where Tatum is clearly playing at an MVP level. He was number one in the straw poll that was done by ESPN last week, I truly believe it's going to be very difficult to take the award away from Tatum. And I know we still have a long way to go here until the end of the season, but how can you give it to Luka based on where his team's at? Look at a guy like Embiid. Maybe you would consider him. Durant's making a run right now in terms of what they're doing with the Nets, where they're rolling right now somehow. And then you look at Denver with Nikola Jokic. You're going to give it to a guy that went for three straight years. I mean, that's really, really difficult to do. We haven't seen a guy win three straight MVPs since Bird did it from 84 to 86. So I think, and maybe it's unfair to Jokic, he's going to have to go above and beyond to be able to do that. So I truly believe that Tatum has set himself up here to win the award. Think about all the great players he's outplayed. When you're talking about the John Morants, when you're talking about the Giannis Antetokounmpo's of the world, when you're talking about the Kevin Durant's of the world, he's ordinarily outplaying the star on the other team. All right, the Suns with Devin Booker and company, they just ran them out of the building, right? So those performances will stick out. So... That's sort of my whole idea on Tatum here is he really does have this opportunity to win the MVP. The team is in a perfect position and he's playing at an insanely high level right now. All right, continuing with the lucky seven, I want to get to Derek White because this is one of the things that I've been harping on all season long. Derek White playing with the starters a lot of the time, playing with Jalen Brown, playing with Jason Tatum, playing with Marcus Smart. They have found the perfect role for Derek White, where there's not a lot on his table. He doesn't have to do a lot of the creation stuff. That's why Brogdon comes off the bench, because Brogdon can be that guy that runs the offense. They're not asking Derek White to do that. They're asking Derek White to be sort of a connector, and he's very active out there. In the first eight minutes that he played tonight, at the beginning of the game, he has four rebounds and he has a steal. 
He's a game high plus 22, right? Because he's playing with the right guys around him. He's like, what, the seventh or the eighth best player on the team? And they're actually treating him that way. They don't treat him the same way they treat a guy like Malcolm Brogdon. He finishes tonight seven boards, three assists as a guard. And so now if you look at it, the reason I say that they're playing him in the perfect role, the numbers would bear it out. The Celtics with Derek White on the court have a 120.80 offensive rating. And that would be the best in the league. The C's are number one at 117.2 entering tonight. With Derek White off the court this season, 115.36 offensive rating, still really good, six in the NBA. But again, you're missing that connecting piece when Derek White's off the court. He's connecting Tatum and Brown. You look at the defensive rating, this is where it really sticks out. With Derek White on the court, the Celtics have a 109.61 defensive rating. That would be seventh in the NBA. With him off the court, it's at 115.04. That would be 27th. So he does make a massive difference defensively. You look at him on the season, 9.9 points per game. 38.2% from deep, which is obviously a big improvement. Three rebounds, three assists, almost a steal a game, almost a block a game. So he gives you basically a little bit of everything offensively, defensively. And if you're talking about the perfect role player on a team that can win a championship, he's that guy. And I do love the fact that he's now not afraid to shoot, which is great because last year on the postseason, it drove me actually insane. Okay, next thing I wanted to get to is the game on Christmas and sort of Giannis in this game. So Giannis got his 12 free throws, but nothing was easy. He had 27 points against the Celtics on 9 of 22 shooting. He had just three shots in the restricted area. The Celtics blocked that shit off. He averages 11.4 per game. He was 0 for 5 from floater range, averages 3.1 attempts per game there. So he was up in terms of the attempts. So basically what that tells you is he was prevented from getting to the basket. 6 of 9 from the mid-range. He ordinarily takes 3.3 a game. His mid-range jumper has improved, but he only shoots 38%. So he had nine mid-range attempts and just three shots in the restricted area. And for some inexplicable reason, he took five above the break threes, only hit one of them. He takes 2.9 per game during the regular season. I don't know why he does that anyway, but he had just four points in the paint. He's at 18.3 per game. That's second in the league to only Zion. So he's down at four compared to 18.3. And remember, so this whole thing is the Celtics have so many guys that they can throw on Giannis. And I would argue they have two of the best guys in the entire league when you're talking about Horford and we're talking about Grant Williams. Now, Giannis will get his. We saw that at times during the postseason last year, but nothing's easy for him. And remember, Giannis isn't like Tatum in the sense where Tatum always produces good offense. Whenever Tatum's on the court, the offensive rating is through the roof. That's not the same with Giannis. And that's not taking anything away from Giannis, but he's not a guy that does a whole lot off the ball, et cetera, right? He's got to be the driving force of the offense. And if even if you go back to that series last year, the Bucs had a 99.7 rating, which would have been the last in the NBA. That's what they had against the Celtics in that series. The worst offense last year was at 103.8. They were at 99.7. The Celtics really were this, where they struggled in that series against Milwaukee was the offense. They had a 108.8 offensive rating. That would have ranked 25th in the NBA. So what we saw differently from the Celtics on Christmas compared to last year, they were incredibly efficient at the restricted area where the Bucks have been so good in the Giannis Brooke Lopez era for lack of, I don't know why I put Brooke Lopez in the same sentence as Giannis, but they're both the rim protectors for that team. The Celtics shot 90% in the restricted area on Christmas. They were 18 of 20. Washington leads the league at 72.6%. So, and the Bucks have been good defending the restricted area again this year, six in the NBA at 63.7%. So what the Celtics did is they exposed that. And the other thing that stuck out to me in that game was Tatum and Brown went at Giannis. They had a combined 17 points on Giannis when he was the primary defender, and he only spent 90 seconds on Jason Tatum as the primary defender. So there is not a fear factor with Giannis and the Celtics anymore. 
They are willing to go at Giannis, and I think they want to make him work defensively because of all the energy he has to expend on the other end. Now, the Bucs, if you look at it, the difference to me with these two teams is the Bucs don't have anyone to throw at Tatum or Brown. They don't. Even Holiday, he's too small. Holiday was a great defender at times against Tatum last year, but he's too small. Tatum's matured too much as a player. Tatum goes three for four on him. Brown goes three for five. And this guy is a first-team all-defender in the past. He's an outstanding defense. He's too small. He cannot handle him. So, really, they don't have a guy to throw at either one of the Celtics' two superstars. And that stuck out. You don't want Giannis to do that, right? And the other component of that is Giannis on the other side. We mentioned you have Grant Williams and you have Al Horford, two guys you can throw at Giannis and make life awfully difficult for him. And that constant pounding that Giannis took in that series last year took a toll on him, right? You go back to game seven, he was 10 of 26. That's what, 38 and a half percent. So I believe Giannis wore down. And I believe Giannis even knows he cannot do this for six or seven games against the Celtics. And he admitted after that he was completely exhausted. So the problem for them is they're going to need Chris Middleton to be the guy that he was pre-injury. And look, the sample size is small this year. He's still dealing with injuries. He's shooting 32.5% in seven games, 26.8% from deep. So the conclusion that I drew after that game was, and I know don't overreact to a regular season game, but it was jarring to see just the fact that they need Chris Middleton to be like the maestro, the pick and roll like he's been in the past, hit like a million pull-up jump shots because the issue for the Bucs is the Celtics have multiple guys that can throw at Middleton as well. They can throw Tatum. They can throw Brown. Heck, if they really want to, they can throw Marcus Smart on him. They have so many different guys that can, they can throw on Middleton and so many different guys that they can throw on Giannis. And what we saw last year is if you neutralize Giannis in every way, shape, or form, or any way, shape, or form, they don't have enough offense. And I believe even with Middleton, they're not going to be able to do that. And we outlined last year like the struggles that the Celtics offense had against the Bucs in that series. Tatum's better. Brown is way better. They didn't have Brogdon. Grant Williams is better. Horford is basically the same guy, if not, quite frankly, a little bit better this year. Rob Williams will hopefully be a factor like we saw tonight against the Rockets. He only played in three of those games last year in the postseason. So all your guys internally, Derek White's better. All these guys have gotten better and you added Brogdon, an additional playmaker and an additional shooter to this team. So I just feel like when the Celtics wanted to, they turned it on in the third quarter. Tatum took over seven of 10. He had those 20 points. They held the Bucs to a 100 offensive rating. They had a 152. And the whole idea of Tatum and Brown wanting to go at Giannis sort of stuck through the screen to me. And remember this, and maybe I'm making a little too much of this, but Giannis prior to the season or during the season, he was on Serge Ibaka's podcast and he was talking about being the face of the league. And Giannis said, LeBron is, Steph just won a championship, KD's still hooping, Embiid's killing it, Jokic back-to-back MVP, Luka Magic. So he never mentioned Tatum. And I believe all these guys take this kind of shit personally. Tatum destroyed Kevin Durant in the postseason last year, and he's mentioning Kevin Durant here. Embiid has never made it to a conference finals. Luka's team got trucked by the Golden State Warriors in that series last year, and he didn't mention Tatum in that sentence. So I believe that's part of the calculus here, where Tatum wants to go at Giannis. I do believe this is a genuine rivalry between the Celtics and the Bucks, and I believe the Celtics are sick and tired of hearing the Middleton shit, right? Because it's like they want to prove a point where... At the end of the game, Jalen got into it with Giannis and Marcus got into it with the bench of the Milwaukee Bucks. So I feel like all they've heard is this stuff about Middleton. And I know Middleton didn't play in Christmas and all that, 
But it's like Middleton is the white whale. Like Middleton is Scotty Pippen or something along these lines. Or Middleton is Kobe to Shaq or something like that. And I feel like the Celtics are just sick of it. And I do truly believe the Celtics have gotten better. And I know the Bucs had a really good start to the season. Quite frankly, I think they've gotten a little bit worse, especially offensively. If Giannis isn't scoring, where are they going? And Brooke Lopez, there's no factor in that game the other day. That's a big thing. All right, continuing on the lucky 70 real quick. I want to see what the Celtics do against this Clippers team on Thursday because Tatum was bad in that game, 7 of 20. That's when the Celtics were in a funk. Kawhi was really good, 10 of 12, 25 points, and George had 26. And I believe this is the one type of team that can give the Celtics trouble offensively because the Bucs can't switch everything. The Clippers can. They have a bunch of guys that are wing size when you talk about Kawhi, you're talking about Paul George, you're talking about even our old friend, the Marcus Morrises of the world, Nicholas Batum. They just have a bunch of wing size guys. And this is the one type of defense. The Warriors did this a lot in the finals, just that switching scheme where the Celtics, you turn them into an isolation team. And it's not going to be a big concern in the East because if you look at it, Brooklyn doesn't have the defenders. Cleveland is big, but they don't really have a wing for Tatum or Brown. Philly plays a lot of drop coverage with Embiid and Harden's going to be out there. So <laughs> they don't really play high level defense. So I don't see anyone that would give the Celtics that type of trouble in the postseason in the East. But the Clippers, the one team out West, and we've seen it with the Warriors in the past. Those are the teams that could give the Celtics a little bit of trouble. OK, and just real quick, wrap it up. My lucky seven with the Bruins here is they go down in a shootout, but they do pick up a point. I thought it was great to see that the way the game ended in regulation where Zaka with just an incredible goal off the rebound to tie things up to make sure that the Bruins did get a point in this game. And I would say the reason they got a point is Swayman at the end there. Just Stones could chuck on a breakaway, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And this is one of those games where the goalie was just really good. Ottawa's goalie, Talbot, was just phenomenal today. Finishes with 49 saves. He has not had a great season, but he was great tonight. The Bruins completely dominated the game. If you look at it, the outshot. The Senators 51 to 33. They won 40 of the 61 faceoffs. In terms of the Corsi rating, where it's shots on goal, missed shots, and block shots, the Bruins had the 63 38 advantage in that one. Oh, one of the note in this game, which it was ultimately the right call, but I just don't agree with the process of it, right? Where they end up calling Bergeron offsides, where he tries to get back and Marshawn goes in and Bergeron ends up getting a rebound, but the rebound happened like 40 seconds later. And so. I think if it's not part of the initial rush, you shouldn't be able to review that, right? Because the game's going on for 40 more seconds. If the refs miss it on the ice like that, I don't think you should be able to go back in time that far back in terms of the process there, right? It just, that to me is kind of aggravating. I, I don't have a problem with, if you want to review it, fine, but you can't wait that long to review it. It just, it doesn't really feel like, from my perspective, it's in the spirit of the rule and you got to figure out a way to fix that. But overall, about the Bruins tonight, I thought, DeBrusque goal was ridiculous where he undresses Shavat and I get it. He got a bounce and he got a little bit lucky there, but he created his own luck by forcing the speed or forcing his speed on them. Three straight games now with a point for DeBrusque and he continues to play a lot better than he did a season ago. But all in all, from a Bruins perspective, I think you got to feel pretty good about coming out with a point with this one, considering you're down 2-1 really late in this game. I thought in the first period and a little bit into the second, this Bruins team was a little bit rusty. They haven't played in three days, so I bet they get their mojo back after this one. And like I said, this is like a night where the Bruins don't win, but they still end up getting a point in this game, which just tells you how dominant this team has been pretty much all season long. All right, a lot more to get into. We will get into the Red Sox because two starting pitchers for this team last year are now gone. Plus, we'll chat with Chris Mason of MassLive.com, get into the Patriots and their chances to get into the postseason. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, 
it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. We want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now from MassLive.com, it is Chris Mason. And Chris, I guess it's kind of weird, right? The Patriots season has been a disaster, but all of a sudden they now have like an opportunity to get into the postseason. So at least they are going to play an interesting game at least for one more week. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny, actually, too, looking back, like before they had that two game West Coast swing, Devin McCourty was like, well, we know we need to win both of these games. And obviously they lose one. And then last week he was like, well, you know, we have to win our last three. We know we have to win our last three. And now we're at a point where it's like, all right, win two and you're in. Just win two and you're in. That's the NFL in 2022. (laughs) Yeah, it really is incredible. So just going back to last week for a second here, Mac Jones, of course, now is making the headlines for the cheap sort of hit that he made on Eli Apple and Eli Apple is running down the field after the turnover there. And Max explanation was that Tyquan Thornton was running. So we wanted to make sure that Tyquan Thornton didn't get in the way. He gets fined $11,000 or a little bit North of that. The explanation that Mac gave didn't really make sense to me. Like Tyquan Thornton runs a four, two, nine, whatever it was at the combine. It's not like he was going to get chased down. It just seemed like a poor excuse for Mac instead of just sort of owning it. Yeah, I agree. And like when he said that, I went back and looked. I was like, I can kind of see it. But ultimately, that's just not a football play, right? Like it really isn't. And I saw some people trying to compare Joe Burrow, like tackling Marcus Jones, like diving into his legs, being like, well, Burrow did it, too. It's like, well, Marcus Jones had the football. He's trying to tackle tackle (laughs) him like a quarterback. He's not just like diving at a random defender's legs 10 yards away from the play. Like, yeah, it was ugly. And then you also look at the fact that now we kind of have this resume with Mac, right? The Brian Burns play going back to last year. And maybe individually you can say, okay, it's not a big deal. And then we have, who was it on the Bears where he slid at Brisker? And he just kind of like kicked his leg up. And now we have this thing that happened on Sunday. So it does feel like Mac Jones is sort of getting this reputation as a dirty player. Is it just like he can't control himself in these situations? Is he too competitive almost? Like what's going on with Mac here? I don't know. It's it's a little Brad Marchandy, isn't it? Where, you know, when he was going through that phase where he would just kind of like lose his mind briefly and then, you know, he'd come back, he'd be Marshawn again. But it, it almost felt like every January for a while too, Marshawn was good for just like one thing where you're like, what are you doing? You don't need to do that. Like, you're, that's not like, that's not who you need to be. You're good enough that you don't need to do that. But it does seem like Mac has a few of these on his resume now. And like one, one by one, you could explain them away. It'd be like that one, that one, that one. But then like in a vacuum, you kind of take a step back and you're like, wow. He hasn't been playing too long and these are starting to pile up a little. And of course, I, it's, I think it's important to note too, this is the first one the league actually fined him for. So mm-hmm. the other ones the league was all willing to dismiss and we're like, yeah, we buy what you're saying. But this time they're like, no, we're, we're hitting you with the $11,000. So I guess that's just where we're at with it. All right, Chris. And the other thing, just like looking at Mac, so it does feel like he still like has the locker room despite the issues. I feel like just like most people in the national media, the local media, most of the blame goes on Matt Patricia rather than the quarterback, Mac Jones. And I think we can all see why. So is that the sort of the vibe you get is that the team is still completely behind Mac, even though we had that like zappy craziness early in the season? Is everybody still behind Mac? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, Earlier this year, I was actually trying to write a feature story. There's like 50 guys who they've been like, oh, he's the first one to the facility every day, right? So I was trying to find out who's actually the first one in there. And Judon told me it was Dietrich Wise. So I started asking around and I was like, is Dietrich Wise actually the first one in here? And too many guys were like, I mean, other than Mac, like Mac beats him in here every day. 
So I think that work ethic, like I, I ended up having to rewrite the story. I was like, well, <laughs> it's a two horse race that Mac usually wins. And I even asked Mac about it and he was good. Like, well, he might get me sometimes if I sleep in at the end of the week, but you could tell it's like, no, he's, he's the first one in there every day still. So I, mean, I think when somebody's putting that much effort into it and, you know, he's kind of been set up to fail this year, I think it's safe to say, and to still just be bringing it and putting that effort in and doing everything he possibly can to like try and rise above the environment right now. Um, I think his teammates definitely still have his back. Yeah. And what about Bill? Right. Because it did seem weird that going back to that Monday night game where I feel like that really hurt this team going forward this season where they play him for three series. And then the explanation was, hey, well, you know what? He couldn't play the full game. And my whole thing was, well, why even play him? Just let Bailey Zappi play. You felt good enough about the backup at that particular point in time. But where do you think Bill and the coaching staff is with Mac? Because clearly, to your point, he has the players. But does he still have the faith of this coaching staff? Does Mac have faith in the coaching staff? Do, well, I don't think he or does, like, but does the coaching staff yeah. have faith in him, like it, being their guy going forward? It's interesting. I feel like you haven't really, this is kind of a lost year in terms of his development and his evaluation where like, I don't think Bill likes him airing out uh, the coaching and the teammates as much as he does, where that's that's one thing that he never really addressed in a press conference. Like he got asked about it on the radio once, dodged the question and then was asked about it in a press conference and said, well, I already talked about that. So I think him not being like, yeah, it's fine. He's competitive. Kind of it, the non-answer tells you something, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas like Judge and Patricia both said, oh, we love it. It shows how competitive he is, how fiery he is. I don't think Bill loves like coaches being airing out, especially as like, you know, a guy that basically grew up at the Naval Academy, chain of command, very important. I, I don't think he loves that. But as a quarterback, it's just so hard to evaluate the season because there's so many other issues with the offense, right? Like you have receivers running into each other. There's so many pre-snap penalties where you're like, you're not going to learn a ton about a quarterback in third and 15 all the time. It just doesn't happen that way. Well, it's a great point on the road spacing. So I'm trying to figure out why does this keep happening, right? This is week 16 of the NFL season and you have your two tight ends actually legitimately running into each other to the point where one of them has to leave the game with an injury and Hunter Henry and he never comes back into the game. He had a play later on in the game where Kendrick Bourne and Jonu Smith are basically in the same area. So it does feel like it's not getting better. And you could argue that that last game, especially the first half, that was their worst performance offensively. Like, I don't understand, even if Patricia's never going to be a good offensive coordinator, I think most of us agree on that. But how is it continually getting worse? It's hard to fathom, right? And you brought up the Janu and Kendrick play too. Like, Janu ended up getting a concussion on that, or at least going into the protocol yeah. because two guys were so close to each other that he got smoked by two guys at the same time. So you ended up losing both of your tight ends to injury in that game because the route spacing was so bad. And I don't understand how it does seem like it's getting worse. It's absolutely not getting better at this point. And it's funny, even like the uh, the Scotty Washington, Jacoby Myers touchdown, like that's touchdown because those guys are too, they're, they're both so close to each other down there. But that's kind of a Hail Mary type play. So I guess it's a little different. Yeah, um, it's still but- embarrassing that it continues to happen all season long. And look, they lucked out. They got a touchdown in that particular situation. But that if they had finished that game off, that would have been one of the most miraculous comebacks that I've seen because they really had no business getting back into that game. So speaking of the receivers, and I know you before the season had an article up about Kendrick Bourne. I've been in the Kendrick Bourne camp. Like I thought he was going to have a breakout season. And I've just been looking through it. The numbers compared to Aguilar, he has 30 receptions on 41 targets. Aguilar's 31 on 51. Catch rate, 73.2%. That would be 60.84 Aguilar, the yards per target, 9.1 for Bourne, 7.1 for Aguilar. Here's the big thing, though. 
Born 377 snaps, 40.8%, 444 for Aguilar, 48.2%. We saw that one of the main reasons the Patriots got back in the game the other day was Kendrick Bourne. So I just can't understand why. All right, if you were mad at him at the beginning of the season, whatever the story was that he missed a meeting, et cetera, fine. But how did it take until week 16 when you had injuries to actually play Kendrick Bourne? Because I looked at that game the other day, more I was more disappointed in the Kendrick Bourne situation, right? Because I'm like, well, you've had this guy all year. Why hasn't he been playing? I just, I don't understand the logic behind not giving this guy more snaps. No, and that's one of those things. It's not It's not second guessing now. That was first guessed at the time, even like after the Miami game when he had that bizarre benching. Like my call after that game was like, you got to figure the Kendrick Bourne thing out. Like he is, he's probably still the most explosive player on that offense, right? Like Jacob Myers, really reliable, not terribly explosive. Ramondre Stevenson growing into a great back, but also not like the home run hitter that Kendrick Bourne is. It just makes no sense. And it like hasn't all year. Yeah, and that's like one of those contracts, right? Because you look at it. I like Hunter Henry as a player, but I can also acknowledge that the guy's overpaid. I do think some of his lack of production this year, or the production going down has been on Patricia. If you just look at the red zone numbers in general, the Patriots have been the worst team in the NFL, and Hunter Henry was really productive in that area last year. John U. Smith, that contract's terrible. Nelson Aguilar, that contract's horrible. And the Kendrick Bourne one, that actually looks like a really good contract. So you would think when you have a guy like that, you would want him on the field more. And it just feels like they've gone in the complete opposite direction. And I keep coming back to this, like, all right, you could do this stuff in the Brady era, right? Because Tom and the offense would make up for it. Whoever you had an issue with, right? Jonas Gray never plays again. Not that he was some important player. But when you don't have Tom Brady around anymore, it does feel like, okay, maybe this is the time that you actually should say, okay, the best players have to be on the field. And my other thing about this is it's not like he's behind great players, right? It, you don't have a number one receiver. It, it, Jacoby Myers at best is like a number two receiver, right? I like Jacoby as a player, but he's not a star. So it just, to me, it's one of the most infuriating and aggravating things about this whole season. And I think if anything, Patricia and company should be embarrassed about what happened in that game the other day because they saw what happened when he played. Right. In this group, especially skill position, it's a relatively low ceiling, Right. So why are you going to drop it even lower? It's like, what are you doing? That's this team in general. I think I would describe them as like they're a high floor, low ceiling group. That's just like they're going to beat bad teams. They're going to beat up on bad quarterbacks, like dumb head coaches. Bill's going to take advantage of, but they haven't been able to like run with the best offenses around the league. It just hasn't happened. So why are you going to take that down another notch? It makes no sense. Yeah, it's. It's one of those things that I'll never understand and we'll probably never get a good enough reason for it because we saw when he's actually on the field, he's better than all these other guys. I do want to get to a little bit more on Mac for a second here because his numbers against the Blitz this year and the pressure numbers have been bad in general, but against the Blitz, he's basically been, his completion percentage is 39th out of 39 qualifiers at 50%. He's got four interceptions tied for the most, 56.1 passer rating, which is 39th out of 39. And I don't put this all on Mac Jones because we've seen some of the issues with the coaching staff in general, but how have they not been able to figure some things out for Mac's like they are for Mac rather, they have no blitz beaters whatsoever in the offense. Like there's no reason that Mac Jones should be the worst quarterback against the blitz in the NFL. And I refuse to put it all on the quarterback. I look at the coaching staff because they've had so many other issues offensively that it's got to be stuff they're not doing. Correct. Yeah, definitely. And one of the biggest things like last year, his numbers were really good in the blitz. And that's, you know, the thing that isn't in a lot of those stats is blitzers actually pressuring him and getting there, right? Like it's one thing if they're blitzing, it's another if they're in his face after like three steps. And I think the offensive line has been a major issue all year. Like tackle depth is something that's another one that you can look back to the preseason. And it's like, 
all right, you're going to rely on Isaiah Wynn and Trent Brown, neither of whom have been durable throughout their career at all. And then you're going to uh, trade Haran away, try and roll with Yadni Kajess as a swing tackle. Like, oh, that's not working. So now you have Connor McDermott, who you just poached off a practice squad playing. <laughs> you know, like not only is he like a practice squad player in New York, but he also hasn't been around all year. So like think about how many people have struggled to pick up this offense and the transition to the zone run and all of that. And now you're just going to throw a new tackle in there in, in like November and be like, oh, yep, you're starting now. So it just it, the, the depth was never there. And I think the offensive line is a pretty big issue with those pressure stats. And like, look, Mac deserves some of the blame, too. I think mm-hmm. he does get absolved a lot and like he's been set up to fail, but there's still like little things that you could be doing. Like he doesn't have to be 39th, put it that way. Right. Like, but there are just so many other things that are going wrong. It's hard to actually blame him. He, he's not like the sole reason. Right. And the other thing I look at too, Chris, is just like, so Matt Patricia is obsessed with screens. Mac has the third highest screen rate in the NFL at 16%. The one that sticks out to me, the Arizona game. I mean, it was just like, okay, they they know what you're doing. Last year, he was 19th in terms of his percentage of dropbacks out of screens. And then the other thing is, and maybe this goes to the offensive line part that they don't trust him. I don't know. The play action numbers, he's now dead last in the NFL in terms of his percentage out of dropbacks at 16%. He dropped below Tom Brady this week. Last year, he's at 26.8%, which was, you know, middle of the road, 15th. But it seems like the Patriots, I thought coming into the season, hey, they could have a good play action game. And I thought that Matt could even be better than he was in year one in the play action passing game. But for some reason, it feels like they've taken that club out of the bag. And the club they put in the bag is the screen game, which to me, I just, I don't understand the logic behind it. Is it something about the offensive line? Is that why he's gone to that more? I think so. I mean, if you take a step back and look at it in theory, it's like it's a screen pass, right? Like you're letting rushers through. If you're having trouble blocking them, like by all means, but it's not meant to be like your nine iron that you hit over and over and over again, right? It's not that like go-to club. It's just it, like there needs to be some variety. That's when the screen works, right? It's not when defenders realize, oh, it's the 12th screen of the game. They're running another one. Like I'm going to like hold back on my rush and just like wreck Ramondre or whoever they're throwing it to. And the play action thing, it could be like, it could be offensive line related where they don't trust. I mean, play action is inherently slow developing, right? Because you have the fake before you can even get into your reads. And it could be they don't expect him to hold up. But I mean, the variety has just been brutal. And that's what you need. You know, you, defenses don't have to guess against them. And yeah, you're, you're seeing what that leads to. Yeah. And you mentioned you had on Twitter last night that the defense they're 0-8 when allowing 20-plus points this season. Since Brady left, you added that, what is it, 4-24 and when the defense allows more than 17 points. So I know you said that they have the locker room, of course, but this is starting, this has to become incredibly infuriating for the defense. As much as they like Mac and all that, it's got to be <laughs> to the point where it's like, if we don't play perfect, we're going to lose. Right, And we may to have be, to score. It has to be so frustrating, but... I don't think they're checked out at all. If you look at like what they did in the second half of that Bengals game, right? That yeah. would have been so easy when they're down 22 to nothing. The offense hasn't come close to crossing midfield at halftime. It would have been easy to mail it in, but instead you have Marcus Jones pick six. Defense gives them life. They start playing again. So, I mean, I think the buy-in is still there, but I'm sure like privately they're frustrated. How could you not be, right? Yeah, I mean, and I wonder too, like the Marcus Jones thing that you mentioned, incredible the return on the pick six. We've seen him return that punt for a touchdown against the Jets. And then, he gets injured at the end of that game and he comes back in as a huge play on offense where right before Ramondre ended up fumbling it. I'm I'm wondering now, like, should they think about converting him to just 
play receiver more than play defensive back. I mean, and I felt bad for him in that game in the first half where it's like, He's given up eight inches to T. Higgins. Like, at some point, you got to help the guy out if that's the matchup you want to go to. But I do wonder if he would be more valuable offensively just because of how, like, twitchy he is and how good he is in the open field. You could definitely make a case for that. I mean, he's someone that projects as, like, he could be a really good slot corner. But yeah. when he's out on the boundary and he's going up against someone like Higgins and man, it's like, it's just unfair. Like, most of those catches, like, Burrow picked on him a little and he had really good coverage. Mm-hmm. But he's given up eight inches or it's like he's trying to cover Jamar Chase, you know, like an all pro. So I think he'd be a good like a good slot guy, but he might have more value on offense, especially with your lack of playmakers there. Yeah. And the other thing, Chris, is so I know you saw it. I know most people here locally saw it. Kurt Warner like tweets out his film notes of the game the other day. And it's just basically every play. There's something wrong with it. Right. And I do wonder we got the report over the weekend that Bill O'Brien could return in 2023 for the Patriots. I do wonder at some point, is there a sense of embarrassment with the Belichick camp that he made this decision to basically have Matt Patricia be the play caller and Joe Judge be, I don't know, whatever you call Joe Judge, second and assistant to the assistant, whatever you want to title him there, where it's like, well, everybody thought this wasn't going to work. And now you have like a Hall of Famer like Kurt Warner. We Dan Orlovsky every week is on NFL Live, absolutely trashing it. He goes on locally on WEI. He trashes the offense. I just wonder where Bill's at right now and if he's actually come to the conclusion that, hey, we can't do this again. I think he has to, right? I mean, he's watching the same offense that we are. I I don't know how he can't see it at this point. And I'm sure it's frustrating for him. And he can be like, well, there's all these different reasons. It's not just Matt and Joe, which it's not just the two of them, but like they are like the top of the totem pole there, right? Like it starts with them and then it goes from there. So, I, I mean, Bill O'Brien's name coming up, it just makes it almost makes too much sense where you're like, yeah, this ch- like checks every box. It, it just makes a ton of sense. So maybe it won't happen. You know, it's it's like almost <laughs> too to happen. But I, I don't think he can run it back with Patricia and Judge. And I think he knows that. Like he's seen how the season played out. Well, and the other element to that is just going back to the offseason, like I felt and I felt at the time like, okay, maybe this means that they think Nick Cayley's like their next Josh McDaniels, right? Because they blocked him from going to the Raiders. They didn't Mm -hmm. block Mick Lombardi. So I thought, okay, maybe this is like opening up the door for Nick Cayley. But if they bring back Bill O'Brien next year, like where is Nick Cayley's role in the organization going forward? Maybe did I I maybe just I overrated what I thought may could or could happen with Cayley. So it just feels like now he's in a weird spot. Yeah, I thought so, too. And. One thing that I was told is like tight ends coach is basically like one step down from an offensive coordinator because they have to be very involved Mm -hmm. in the run game and the pass game, right? It's the nature of that. So you're not just with the running backs. You're not just with the wideouts. Like you're very involved in both of those. So a next logical step from tight ends coach is offensive coordinator. But the fact that he hasn't really assumed any sort of play calling thing like at all this year makes me, maybe they don't think as highly of him as I thought they did. But I mean, I think he'd probably just be blocked if O'Brien came back. Yeah. And that's my whole thing going back to why block him then? Why why keep right. him on the staff and not let him go to the Raiders to actually he would have had the role that Mick Lombardi did where he's like, I guess he's not calling the plays because Josh is, but at least he's got that offensive coordinator title, if you will. All right. So I didn't want to get to Tua for a second because so now Tua's in concussion protocol again, and it actually happened in the second quarter of that game. But from a Patriots perspective, you get Teddy Bridgewater. And I know that the Patriots Basically, all the quarterbacks they've beaten, you tweeted out this morning, they all got benched besides like Jared Goff. The rest of them are on the bench right now. So 
Maybe it isn't that big of a difference with that Mike McDaniel offense, but it does seem like this Dolphins team lately, they have not been the team that we saw at the beginning of the season. There just seems to be, I don't know if people have figured out the Mike McDaniel offense, whatever it is, they figured out Tua, but that offense hasn't been nearly the same. Yeah, they've definitely been slowing down. And um, man, I'd be, can Tua play again this year? Like if he had a third concussion and is like doing, it's like day after symptoms that are really bugging him, like, at what point do you just shut him down and think like, all right, we got to go long-term here, especially if you're Miami and you're like fighting for a last wildcard spot. Like they're not winning the Super Bowl this year. It's just not it. So at what point do you like really make the adult decision and say, I'm putting the player's health first. Like we, we can't do any more of this. Like, cause he's probably, or there's a good chance he's had three concussions this year now. Right. Like, yeah. So I don't know at what point, like you just shut him down and say, all right, like rest up, buddy, come back next year. And like, we'll, we'll give it a go. Yeah, I feel bad for him because that was the same situation, not the same exact situation. But remember, like Aguilar at least saw that Parker was dealing yeah. with something and got to the officials, got to the sideline, whatever. With Tua, it didn't happen. Tua, that happened in the second quarter. And we saw at the end of the game, maybe that's part of the reason he had those turnovers late. But nonetheless, like at least with the Patriots, they found it like it was late, but they at least found that Devontae Parker was like staggering at that point. So now if they beat the Dolphins on Sunday, the following week, they'll get the Bills. And either way, the Bills are going to have something to play for, right? Because, okay, let's say they beat the Bengals, then they have to win in the final week to wrap up that number one seed because they're tied with the Chiefs, but they beat the Chiefs earlier this season. And even if they lose, the Chiefs are going to play the final week of the season. Now, maybe the Bills just decide to rest, guys, but it does feel like either way, I would guess they're going to get a healthy Bills team for that final game. Is that the, is that the feeling you have? Yeah, definitely. I, I think you're going to see like a real um, like 100 percent effort from the Bills in that last game. So I don't know. I mean, maybe the best thing is just to hope for another biblical windstorm. You know, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's the key to victory there. But that that's going to Buffalo and winning that last game is such a tough ask. Like they could very well beat the Dolphins this weekend, but I, I don't see Buffalo and Buffalo happening. Yeah, well, hey, Mac is 1-0 when he attempts three passes or less. So may, maybe that could help them in that final game against the Bills. True. Undefeated doing it. Yeah. Just before I let you go, Nathaniel Hackett fired from the Denver Broncos after not even a full season. And Gerard Mayo was a candidate for that job last season. Apparently, they really liked him. I'm wondering, has this season, and look, the defense has been great, so I'm guessing the answer is probably not. Do you think he's got a legitimate chance this cycle, if it's not with the Broncos, to land somewhere else, a head coaching gig? I do. And he... In addition to like the resume he has, he's really engaging. And I think he comes off very well in job interviews. I don't think it'll be Denver, though, just because they need someone who's going to fix Russell Wilson, right? They need mm -hmm. somebody, I think, offensive minded that's going to kind of put the pieces back together there. And obviously, Mayo is a defense guy. So I don't know if they would go that route. They could, but I think he has a better shot somewhere else. Hey, maybe they'll try to pick off Matt Patricia. Maybe Matt Patricia can fit, fix Russell Wilson. <laughs> what an experiment that'd be. <laughs> it is funny, though, because for so many years, we had all these Patriots coordinators that were up for jobs, even though a lot of them had failed in the past. This year, it's going to be like the only guy is Gerard Mayo, who technically isn't the defensive coordinator. I don't know. He helps a lot with all that, but it is kind of funny that he's the only guy that would get an opportunity. Yeah, first time in a while with that. <laughs> yeah, unbelievable. It would have been Josh every single year for like a decade. <laughs> Yeah. And then Patricia got his gig. Yep. Joe Judge got his gig. But I would be it feels like Gerard Mayo. He's kind of in a different category, right? Because he was also a player and it does feel like he's really engaging. The guys really like being around him. So I do think he's in a different sort of category than these other former bill assistants. Like I'd almost put him in. I know that Vrabel never was an assistant for 
Bill, but I would kind of put him more in the Vrabel camp than I would like the Patricia, Joe Judge, Josh McDaniels, Rack, uh, going back to Charlie Weiss back in the day. Like, I feel like he's more of Vrabel type. Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. All right. That is Chris Mason from MassLive.com. Chris, thank you so much for the time, man. Enjoy the rest of the season, my friend. You got it, man. Thanks for having me on. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Viore. If you're sick and tired of your old traditional workout gear, then I have two words that will change everything. Viore clothing. This line of activewear is truly unbelievable. And here's why. Look, you've seen me. You've seen the shorts I do on YouTube. I walk around. I do stuff. I listen to podcasts when I walk. I make calls when I walk. I like to wear comfortable workout equipment, you know, like nothing nuts. Just like a really nice pullover, comfortable pants to walk around. Viore is designed to work out in whatever you're doing, but it doesn't look or feel like you're working out at all. It's so freaking soft and comfortable. You'll never want to take it off. And here's the best part. You don't have to take it off. Wear Viore clothing to train, travel, or lounge around the house. I do a lot of lounge around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash ringer. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash ringer. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from Chris Mason, MassLive.com. Make sure you follow him on Twitter, read his stuff. He had a great article about Kendrick Bourne before the year. He was right about his article at the beginning of the year that Kendrick Bourne should have had a breakout season, but thank Matt Patricia for that. Well, I want to get to your calls. Let's do that. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Who's up first? Hey, Brian. This is Zach from Rochester again. I just wanted to call in and say that uh, I think we're overestimating how good this run game is right now. In yards per attempt, you know, last year they were they were top 10 in the league. This year, they're in the 20s. You know, I, I think it's all great and everything to to think back to the kind of the Belichick standard of run the ball and then pass off the run, but that's not this team right now. And this isn't a Ramondre thing. This is a, the line is absolutely horrible right now at run blocking. So, you know, if it was me, I would be going to these last two games and just be telling Mac to chuck it. You know, I, I really think that the pass right now has been more effective. We saw it in the Cincinnati game when they started throwing the ball more because they were down by 22, that's when they had uh, an effective passing attack. So let's just go into these last few games, let's tell Matt to just throw it, and then maybe, maybe, maybe we'll know a little bit more what we have instead of eluding ourselves that the run game's going to get us anything. 
Yeah, I agree with you for the most part. And I'll also mention the fact that if you look through it through the season, the Patriots are actually the worst ranked team on first down running the football from foots, uh, from football outsiders metric DVOA. So they've been terrible when it comes to that. And the other component of that is Mac Jones, since returning to the lineup, I'm saying after the Bears game. So from week, week eight on, he is last in the NFL in drop back success rate. So what's happening is the Patriots are getting so predictable on first down that it's actually hurting your quarterback on second and third downs. So I would agree with you. They have to throw the ball more often on first down. When they've done it, it's actually been way more successful than running the ball on first down. So I'm with you. I think they have to throw the ball a lot more than they've been throwing it recently. And it's really embarrassing from a Patriots perspective that you legitimately, and I know he fumbled the ball last week and we got on him about that, but Ramondre Stevenson is legitimately one of the best backs in the NFL and his numbers would be way better if the Patriots could actually block for the guy. All right, who's up next? Brian is David from Harrisburg, Kentucky. Hope you're having a great holiday season. Um, yesterday, Celtics beat the Bucks. Uh, of course, final score was a lot of fun. Jason Tatum dunking on Giannis. All that was great. Favorite thing about that game was uh, the Celtics didn't look scared. Since game three or four of, of the Warriors season last year, uh, sometimes it felt like in big moments, certainly in the end of that series and then um, into the Warriors game a few weeks ago, Celtics have kind of like clammed up against big opponents. I know they beat the Sixers to start the season. Um, I know they beat the Suns on the road, but like the Warriors specifically. But even in this moment, I was worried that we might um, kind of kind of be like feel like the moment's too big for us. But uh, obviously, Tatum going at Giannis. I like Jalen uh, tried to tried to yam it on on Splash Mountain. Uh, just couldn't get it all the way down. But even at the end, where there's some pushing and shoving, and and we're bowing up to Giannis. I like that spirit back in the Celtics team. Um, shots will come and go, uh, but something that I certainly want to continue to see from the Celtics team is a spirit uh, that's that's fighting, that believes they belong with the NBA's best. And I feel like we saw that yesterday. You see what result we get from that. So, thanks. Love the show. Once again, hope you have a great holiday season and uh, have a good one. Bye. Yeah, a lot of good points there. And I'll say, like, the only thing that I didn't like about that game is Jalen Brown missing three free throws at the end of the half, where I thought that was just an incredibly dumb foul by Bobby Portis at the end of the half. I don't know why the fuck he was complaining about that. You clearly fouled the guy. But other than that, it was basically like the perfect game you wanted to see from the Celtics. They came out with energy. They battled. They completely took over in the third quarter. Your best player was better than their best player. I'm talking about Tatum compared to Giannis, and I do love the feistiness. I like the fact that they're going at these guys, right? Because we saw last year in the NBA Finals, and I get it's a different team, and I know the Celtics lost to the Warriors, but the Warriors punked the Celtics in the Finals. Jalen Brown was in a situation where Draymond Green got under his skin, and what we saw in this game on Christmas Day is the Celtics went at the Bucs. They wanted the Bucs. Smart's going at them. Jalen's going at them. I love that. Just send that team the message, and I do really think Giannis is thinking long and hard after that game, like, Oh, shit. If I don't get Pete Chris Middleton, this could get ugly. The Celtics are the deeper team. They have more answers for what the Bucs do offensively. The Bucs do not have a lot of good answers right now for what the Celtics do from an offense perspective. And that isn't hyperbolic. Just watch what the Bucs do strategically. The Celtics can expose it. Last year, it felt like they weren't quite ready for that moment. They end up winning the series because Tatum saves it in game six, the 46 points. And then Grant goes nuts in game seven. But I feel way more confident, even if Middleton's back, the Celtics going up against this team rather than last year. All right, great stuff. Remember that number if you want to leave us a voicemail is 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. All right, a couple of Red Sox notes here. So first of all, let's start with Nathan Evaldi because he's the bigger name. He signs with the Texas Rangers. The reported deal is for two years, $34 million. I can live with the Red Sox 
losing Evaldi. His final seven starts after returning from the IL, the fastball is down to 94.3 miles an hour, and the usage is down to 34.6 compared to pre-IL. He was at 96.6, and the usage is at 40.3%. He never got his velocity back whatsoever. So with Evaldi, the injuries concern you. But with him, it was the higher upside move. So if the Red Sox really didn't think he could get back to the guy he was pre-injury, I totally understand this, right? If you're not bringing back Nate. And the other thing about Evaldi is he got hit really hard last year. And this is even before he was dealing with the injury. So if you look at his numbers, he had a 44.9% hard hit rate last year. That just basically means balls off the bat 95 plus miles an hour. That ranked 119th out of 124 starting pitchers, minimum of 100 innings. Two years ago in 2021, he was at 36.2%. That was the 16th best. So he went from 44.9% to 36.2. He gave up 21 home runs last year. He faced just 460 batters, okay? In 2021, he gave up 15 home runs. He faced 764 batters. So you look at that. That last year is at 1.73 home runs per nine innings, okay? 123rd out of 124 starters that threw at least 100 innings. Two years ago, he's at 0.74. That was the fourth best in baseball. So I think part of what you saw here is, remember, there wasn't a big market for Evaldi. And part of that was he had a draft pick attached to him. Oh, more on that in a second. I do have to get to that because disgraceful what the Red Sox did in terms of the draft conversation. I'll get into that in a little bit when I get into a little bit more with this team. But just in particular with the Evaldi situation, it's not a, a thing where I'm upset that they lost Nate. I love what Nate did for the organization. I love what he did in the World Series. He pitched. Remember, he got all this praise for coming out and throwing, what was it, eight innings or so. He had a 161 ERA in the 18 postseason. He started the wild guard game for you. But I just feel like I really worry about the guy's health long term. So in a vacuum, I don't mind losing Nathan Evaldi whatsoever. The problem is there's not really a market right now with a lot of starting pitchers available. I'll get into some that are out there in a little bit, but I just, I'm not going to get upset. Like, I I know a lot of people tonight on Twitter are upset about Avaldi getting signed elsewhere. I'm really not that upset about it because I just, I'm not betting on the track record in terms of the health. He's had one healthy season here, right? You go back to 2021, that's it. 2020, he gets shut down. 2019, he has the procedure with the loose bodies in his elbow and he's not able to continue that last year where he's dealing with all these injuries and he never got it back. So I'm okay with losing of all the in a vacuum. Now, I have a bigger issue with Bloom in terms of not adding starters. Let me address that in a second. But the other guy that's gone is Rich Hill. One year, $8 million with the Pirates. Uh, congratulations to Rich for getting $8 million. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why you'd want to pitch for the Pittsburgh Pirates. I guess it's the $8 million. And again, like, I'd love to pile on Bloom here in terms of the particulars, but I'm not mad about losing him. 26 starts last season, okay? ERA was at 427, which was 74th of 101 pitchers that threw at least 120 innings. The whip was at 130. We know he doesn't stri- uh, strike anybody out. And remember, he had issues staying healthy. He had a knee issue. He went from July 1st to August 2nd in between starts. And that's really when the Red Sox went on that downturn because they had no starting pitchers. I just, I can't bet on the track record of Evaldi's health and especially Rich Hill's health, considering the guy is 40 years old. So that leaves a couple of options if the Red Sox want to try to get a starter. Waka's still out there. Walker last year was really good for this team, 332 ERA, a 112 whip, which was 33rd out of 101 starters, that minimum 120 innings. And the hard hit rate was pretty good, 35.4%, 30th in baseball. Ground ball rate, not great, 41%, 58th out of 101, but not bad. And I do worry, like, he doesn't have a great fastball, as we all know, but his changeup is sick. His changeup was ridiculous last year. One of the best changeups in all of Major League Baseball. And he's a reverse splits guy because of that. 
You look at it last year, opponents hit just 170 against it. So if you can get back him on a good deal, I would take it just because there's not a lot of depth with this pitching staff. The other guy you could look at is Kluber. Numbers weren't exceptional last year, but he did make 31 starts and threw 164 innings. And if you look at this team right now, you do worry about the track record in terms of the health with a lot of these guys in the rotation. So, but Hill and Evaldi, it does sort of bring up a bigger issue with me with this pitching staff. Now, those are a couple of options. It's not like you're not, you're not getting a frontline starter right now. Those guys aren't available. But if you look at it, Sale, just five and two thirds last year. He was 42 and two thirds in 2021 after Tommy John. So he's given you nothing over the past couple of years here. Now, he is a high upside guy, right? If his changeup's back, he's a really good pitcher still. If he has that change, but the problem is we know what the risk is with the injury. I mean, even if it's not coming back from the Tommy John, the guy's falling off a bike. I mean, the guy, in terms of the health record, it's sketchy at best. Then you look at Paxton. I wouldn't even consider this a high upside play. If anything, he's a good number three if he's healthy, right? I mean, he had one borderline elite season. That came all the way back in 2017. So... That, again, with Sale and with Paxton, the upside for Paxton is number three. The upside with Sale is a number two, but you're betting on the health of both those guys. So that brings up Bayo. Now, we all know this guy is incredibly talented. I love the fact that he's working with Pedro this offseason. Ground ball rate was crazy last year, 55.7%. If you juxtapose that with qualified starters in Major League Baseball last year, only two guys were north of it, and they're elite pitchers. Framber Valdez, who's the best ground ball pitcher in Major League Baseball. The guy's a stud. He's going to be the number one for the Astros this upcoming season with Verlander moving on and Logan Webb out in San Francisco. But again, with Bayo, it's not a health concern, but he's 23 and he still needs to clean up some of his control issues. So that's another question mark in terms of, yeah, you could see it, but he's 23. It may not happen until his 24 or 25 year old season until he develops into an elite starting pitcher. And you're going to want to be careful because of the age with the innings. You don't want to wear the guy down, right? Because he hasn't had a season where he's close to 200 innings. So again, there's a concern there just in terms of making sure you do what's right for him in terms of his long-term future with this organization because he's your number one pitching prospect. And then there's Whitlock. So this is his first real chance at being a starter in the rotation. Now, he had opportunities last year, but he wasn't ready coming into the season to do that. Remember, they had the weird situation where Tanner Hout couldn't pitch in Toronto and at the same time, unfortunately, Rich Hill's father had passed away. So you needed him to make a spot start. But then they kept him in the rotation. He never really worked up to a guy that could give you five, six innings. He was terrible the second time through the order. I'm not saying that's who he is long term. I'm just saying there are question marks about Garrett Whitlock in terms of will he be a good starter? Now, I believe in the mentality and I believe in the stuff enough where I think it's going to happen, but I can't guarantee it. And then there's Pavetta, where Pavetta is closer to a back end guy than a front end guy. He's had control issues his entire career. Even last year, 9.4%. That was cleaning up for Pavetta. And he was second to last among qualified starters when he cleaned up his control issues, right? He was way worse the season prior where he was over 10% in terms of the walk rate. So I truly believe that this isn't a consistent guy. And then Hulk is a bullpen guy. I don't want Hulk in the rotation whatsoever. So you legitimately, in terms of your starting rotation... You have no certainty in the group. You have a lot of potential, you have a lot of upside, but you have no certainty, which is why I just don't understand why there wasn't more of an effort to land someone with a proven track record. So DeGrom was probably going to Texas no matter what. It felt like he wanted out of New York and it felt like he wanted to go closer to home. Verlander, you didn't want to pay him. You didn't want to give the years to Rodon and this guy I've told you for two years I've wanted. But not even a Chris Bassett type guy where Bassett made 30 starts last year. He's a good, solid pitcher. And the Blue Jays, who already have Alec Manoa and Kevin Gosman, said, yeah, we'll take him for three for 63. 
And I know he's a little bit older, but you're talking about his 34, 35, 36-year-old seasons. If Bassett was on the Red Sox, he would be their most reliable guy because you know he's going to give you the 30 starts and you know he's going to give you quality starts. Even if he's not an elite ace, at least he's a guy that you know you can depend on. Right now, the Red Sox really don't have any of those guys. So even if you didn't go big game hunting, you didn't go mid game hunting either, right? So you just can't go into the season with this group. So you got to find a way. Like those guys I gave you, Waka and Kluber. Now, I know Kluber made all the starts last year, but he had issues with the health in the past. You look at a guy like Waka, even him last year, 127 innings or 127 and a third. So he's not somebody that's going to consistently be healthy for you. I just feel like they're going to have to do it in the trade market. And we'll see if Bloom can pull this off. Because, I mean, and John Heyman even reported over the weekend, the Sox have been getting calls about Chris Sale. First of all, they're not trading him now. His value has never been lower. He barely pitched last year. So what I believe is happening here right now, and I think it's similar to what the fan base is feeling. I think nobody in Major League Baseball has any idea what the Red Sox are doing. Nobody has an idea what they're doing. So we're seeing like crazy, like, hey, maybe Chris Sale can be available. Honestly, I don't know what they're trying to do. They paid way more for Yoshida than anybody else was willing to pay. That's the reason he was here. And that's the reason he signed so quickly. They put a good amount of dough into the pen, bringing in Martin and Jansen, but they didn't replace their second best player in Xander Bogarts. So I really don't know what they're doing. And the issue that I have right now is it just feels like they're throwing a bunch of shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. Like, I know what the Yankees plan is. Even if you say, hey, the Yankees are a flawed team, I would agree with you. You know what they're trying to do. They signed Rodon and they brought back Aaron Judge. They're trying to win. The Mets are trying to win. They signed Verlander, right? I know the Phillies are trying to win. They added Trey Turner. I think the thing here is, and maybe this is the most disappointing thing to me where it's not really confusing. It's just disappointing. I believe the Red Sox went into this offseason trying to win. I think they thought they were going to improve this team because the evidence would be Bloom said that they were going to add starting pitching. All they've done this offseason is actually lost starting pitching. So they actually put that out there. Like he said this publicly. This isn't a report. He legitimately said that they were going to add starting pitching and they haven't done that whatsoever. So that's the more concerning thing to me than just missing on all these guys is they're trying to win and they can't sign the necessary pieces because it feels like the guy running the organization has no idea what the fucking market is for anybody whatsoever. And then I just think about this from sort of a fan perspective is JD's gone, Bogarts is gone, Mookie's been gone, now Nate's gone, Ben Benintendi's been gone. It's just that memory of the 2018 Red Sox team, where that's the best team in the history of the organization from a win perspective. They were an absolute wagon. Remember, all these other teams that have battles throughout the postseason, the Red Sox had none of that. One loss against the Astros, one loss against the Yankees, one loss against the Dodgers. Like, that team was an absolute juggernaut. And all the main pieces basically basically from that team are gone. Like, yeah, Chris Sale, but he was coming out of the bullpen by the time he got to the World Series. Devers was still sort of in his embryonic stages as a player at that particular point in time. Basically, it's Cora and it's Devers and throw in Chris Sale. I mean, this whole team is gone. And it was 2018. It's crazy to see the turnover on the roster, so to speak. Oh, I did want to mention this because with Bogarts and Evaldi gone, this is great. This is a note from Sox Prospects. And if you're not checking that website, if you're a Red Sox fan, you're doing it wrong because these guys have great write-ups and all the prospects. But how about this? So if the Sox had got under the luxury tax threshold at the deadline, okay? So remember, the Red Sox finished in last place, but they went over the tax. So if they had gotten under the tax at the deadline, they would have gotten the 70th and the 71st pick in the draft for Bogarts and Nate leaving. 
Instead, since they went over the threshold, the luxury tax threshold, they get 133 and 134 and they lose an additional $1 million in bonus pool money. So the Red Sox lost a million. They went from 70 and 71 to 133 and 134 for a team that finished in last place. I mean, this to me may be the most incompetent thing that Bloom has done in his tenure. And that's saying something. This guy traded Mookie Betts for Verdugo, Connor Wong, and Jeter Downs. And this may be more incompetent. This may be more evidence of incompetence than anything he's ever done before. How is that possible? You had a last place team. You paid the tax and you're losing draft picks in terms of where you're at in the draft. And you're losing $1 million. How is that remotely possible for the team you put on the field? You traded Renfro. You brought in more money in Jackie Bradley Jr. because you got rid of Renfro. I mean... And you sign guys like Deekman. The incompetence of this front office right now is downright baffling. All right. So, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast. And we'll chat in a couple of days. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York, we want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client.